FOMO. The FOMO of our lives. Everybody's got FOMO. Now, if you're not sure what FOMO means, it means fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Everybody has FOMO. You may not have heard of it, but you've felt it. You felt the fear of missing out. Now, while the acronym is new, the feeling is not. And that sort of fear is not. You can even be a senior person in years. And I, I pastor a bunch of people in different ages. And I know as I talk with people, you can be in your 80s, in your sunset years, and you have a fear of missing out. A fear that I've missed things in life, or I didn't get opportunities and grab them, and, or I've, I've done things, a fear of missing out. You can be a middle-aged man like me and have FOMO issues. We call that a midlife crisis, where I fear that I didn't get the, the fancy car and the, the, the status and reputation and whatever it got. I need to get that thing, have that thing in life, and I won't miss out. Middle-aged men, midlife crisis. You can be in your 30s, and FOMO kicks in because 40 ain't far away. You can be a teen or in your 20s where study after study shows people who live on social media have heightened sense of anxiety and FOMO in manifold ways. Those who live by social media die by social media. You live by the likes, you die by the likes, don't you? This is FOMO, fear of missing out. Everybody has it. Because everybody is designed by the Creator, God, not to miss out. That's why we have FOMO, because ever since the beginning we reject Him and we've been kind of got this feeling of missing out, of something bigger and better in our lives, if only we knew what that was. Everybody is missing out. It's not just that we fear it, we miss. We miss actually meeting Him. And we actually therefore miss seeing him truly change our lives and satisfy. Friends, uh, we're in a series in John's Gospel. Last week we're in John chapter 3 in the most probably famous passage, John 3.16. It's written on footballers' faces and arms and it's, it's put in all sorts of places around the world. It's a famous passage and in John 3 in that first part we did see just how much God loved the world. A conversation when Nicodemus and Jesus comes up and that conversation moves very quickly to the kingdom of God. It's a conversation of who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God. And now we see in the context, uh, we see as Chris read, uh, Jesus is, he's gone south in the Judean countryside and he's baptizing down there with his disciples, baptizing. And then there's John the Baptist and he's further north and he and his disciples are baptizing. So it's kind of two teams doing some baptisms in the countryside. And again, like Nicodemus and Jesus, that conversation we saw last week, there's another conversation now. But this time, interestingly, surprisingly, Jesus doesn't speak here. In fact, we're not seeing Jesus talking. It's just really looking at John and what John says about Jesus. It starts, you see, in verse 22 with a discussion, perhaps a debate, about purification that leads to a conversation about competition. Seems strange those two things are connected, doesn't it? How does 
purification lead to a conversation about human hearts and competition? Well, let's have a look. Look at verse 22. You see, uh, here we see, uh, sorry, verse 25, I mean, look at verse 25. Here we see the ancient Near East equivalent of FOMO. Here we see the ancient Near East, the first century equivalent of fear of missing out. And here's how it goes. In verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, well, firstly, why would purification come up in this conversation? Why? Well, I hope it is fairly obvious. What are they doing? They're baptizing people. There's lots of water, as we saw last week, water everywhere. Of course, it's related to John's baptizing. Now, friends, we could easily treat this as just some first century topic that has nothing to do with us. Like we could look at the topic of purification, how to be pure, and say, well, that's for those religious people over there. That's for the Sunday morning goers here in Bendigo, and perhaps a long time ago, it's just for the religious people. We're not interested in purification very much. And you know what? I actually think that's a fib. That's not true. Our society is very interested in purification, if you just scratch beneath the surface. You see, it looks different, but it comes in many forms, and it's about the same big idea. For us, purification might be about being in the right crowd, being in, being accepted by others, affirmed, being liked, likeable, receiving the likes, to have that feeling that I've made it. People like me, and I'm in, I'm pure, I'm theirs. If it's not that for you, purification might be eating right. You know, you've seen this. Um, Perhaps there are influencers out there and, and they eat just so right and they take pictures of their food and it's just perfect and it's healthy. And when I look at their food and I look at my food, and um, I know they're pretty good food, by the way, but I look at their food and I'm thinking, I'm not pure like them. I can't detox. And we treat those sorts of things as making us better people. Because I eat better than you do. I'm more pure. It might be purification comes for us as that secret competition in our hearts. You know, we try and forget our own impure lives, our own impure thoughts, like Amy said in the kids' talk, and we instead focus on other people. Oh, that's a bad person over there. And we forget that we are impure. And so we have this secret comparison, contrast, competition going on in our hearts. See, for purification for us becomes in our society being right and you're wrong. I'm in, you're out. I'm on the right side of history, you're on the wrong side of history. I'm righteous on any issue, I'm better than you. We are very interested in purification. It's a matter of the heart, isn't it? The drive shaft of our lives is our heart. How you behave is driven by what you believe in your heart. Do you believe life is all about you? Then you won't serve others. It'll just be about you. You'll just totally be self-absorbed. And if someone questions that, you get angry because they're questioning your belief system, which is you. Uh, We need purification. We just need the right purification. It's a matter of the heart. 
and then throw in some fear, fear of missing out, it becomes a competition and the symptoms of FOMO we see here. Particularly when we think about, do I miss out with God? Here is a Jew discussing purification with John the Baptist's disciples. This is a discussion of who's in and who's out. This is a discussion of who's right and who's wrong. Who is with God and pure and who is not? And is it baptism? Is that what does it? Is that how we get pure? This is the discussion. This is what it's all about. And purification is important for them. Why is it important? It's important for us because sin is important. What is sin? Some of you, many of you actually have come to our church and you've actually never been to a church before. Do you know you're really welcome here? We exist in one sense for you. And you might be meeting words like sin and you've never really heard of that word before or not really sure what that is. Here's an easy definition of sin. I mean, you could call it evil, human evil, and you could, well, look at hot spots in the world. That's human evil. But then if we just think of human evil as the bad people, the dictators doing the bad things, we never think of actually, could I be... Could I possibly have some of that sin in my life? But here's a better definition of sin. It's the opposite of love. If God is love and and God has designed the world and he's designed us to love him and love one another, do we do that very well? No, we don't. Even ask people that love each other dearly. Ask a married couple. Do, Do you love each other very well all the time? No, we do not. There is sin in our hearts and it spills out of our mouths into our words and in our actions. Sin is a problem, which means purification is the answer we need. We, in our hearts, have a deeply nagging, urging sense that we need to be pure. Humanity once lived that way. Our ancient grandparents in the garden and in second term, God willing, will be in the book of Genesis, starting from the beginning, because Genesis and John are very related. But we see that when God creates the world in those six days and the pinnacle of that creation is humanity, we are living in this pure place with God, dwelling with God, but we are the ones that said, we'd rather do it our own way, thank you very much. We don't love him. We believe the lie. We turn against him. And we've been living this way ever since. And yes, we try and polish up the world a little bit. It's not too bad. It's not broken. Look, we glued some bits together. And how does that work out for us? Not very well. We need purification. Just like there's all sorts of new fads of being pure in mind and body these days. You know, maybe you're worth it, as the ad says. What you really need is your heart changed, not your skin changed. Not your digestive system changed. You need your heart changed, friends. I need my heart changed. And so purification comes up and that quickly turns to a competition conversation. Why? It's weird, isn't it? Here's John's disciples. They're talking about purification and all of a sudden they notice if it's coming to the purification game of how do we get pure, who's getting pure, look, we're baptising, hey, There's another crowd over there baptising, just like us. And they feel like they're in competition with one another. It's the competition to see who can baptise. Who gets pure by baptism? It's almost like they're saying, hey John, hey uh, leader, 
if we don't get a better marketing campaign, we're going to miss out on this whole boon industry of baptising these days. And all these people are interested in baptism. It's really, we need to get into this market, it's really huge. They've turned something which is a symbol of God's grace to us into that's the way that we must have the big market on baptism. Yet John sees what's going on. He sees the connection to purification. He sees the connection to their competition that's dwelling in their hearts. And John, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets, in Matthew 11, Jesus says is the greatest of them, John shows what's really happening. And he says, perfect opportunity. Here is a sermon. And the big idea is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is here. Disciples, John says to his disciples, and he must increase. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You see this? John speaks straight up at the sovereignty of God. He speaks of the sovereignty of God. All we have is from God. It's like we, we heard in our singing giving. David knows this. King David says in 1 Chronicles 29 verse 14 that all we have comes from you. All we have. Do you know this? Do you believe this? We often say things like this, my money. It's actually not your money. We say, my stuff. Well, not really. My life. Did you decide when to be born? Did you fill your breath with lungs as a helpless little baby? Did you sustain yourself today? Everything we have is from God. And John is saying, everything we have is from God. Everything I have as just a prophet is from God. And then John repeats what he's already said to his team of disciples. He said this, he says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness. I've already said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. And so what is John doing? He's over there. And here is where John brings the Old Testament scriptures of God's word to this episode and he focuses what this is all about, namely who it's all about, and we need to see this, that we have now no fear of missing out. See, John's disciples are fearing, like, oh, we're going to miss out, we're going to miss out on the big deal here. And, and John is saying, no, it doesn't matter how big your ministry is, how many people you baptise, it doesn't matter your, your reputation, your career, those things don't matter. What matters is, do you know you don't miss out if you have Christ the bridegroom? Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Which means, John continues, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. My joy is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What do we call the friend of the bridegroom these days? We call him the best man. In my job, I do a lot of weddings. It's just, you know, someone once said to me, oh, you're in the job of hatch, match, and dispatch. If you want to put it crudely like that, yes. When you see a wedding, what's the highlight, the pinnacle of a wedding ceremony? Aside from Christ being preached. But it's the bride coming in, isn't it? And then where do you look? Whenever the bride enters the room, 
you notice this, don't you? She enters the room and then you look to the bridegroom and what's he doing? Usually falling apart. Now what's the best man doing? The friend of the bridegroom, what's he doing? If he's a, a bad best man, he's there going, hey, I'm in a suit, check me out. I've not seen many bad best men, but that would be... If, if He's not doing the job of a best man. The best man's job is to go into the shadows and say, Look at his joy! The bride is coming and the bridegroom is happy. He's full of joy. My joy is complete. That's the best man's job. The best man's job is not to give a speech that's made for a 21st, written to embarrass the bridegroom is to speak in such a way that says, Look! Look! Jesus is the bridegroom. When Alyssa read from Hosea 2, we read that Old Testament reading, we always read a a reading that is a cross-reference, a connection, at least one. You could read the whole Bible, right? 66 books, but we try and focus on keeping our time and seeing the big connection in the Bible, we read from Hosea 2. You can see in Hosea chapter 2, the book of Hosea, you can see in lots of places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God calls himself a bridegroom. Why? Because who's the bride? You. God's people are his bride. In the Old Testament, he speaks of his people Old Testament people of God are Israel, his bride. And every time we see that illustration, it's beautiful. Except here's the thing about Hosea. It's beautiful after being tragic. As I said, I preached at a few weddings, um, and I always say to the couple, Pick your favourite Bible passage and I'll preach from it. Because you can, you can preach from anywhere in the Bible and get to the Gospel. You can get to Christ from any page, any sentence in the Bible. is all about Jesus. In fact, here's a tip. If you hear a sermon from anywhere in the Bible and you don't get to Christ, you actually haven't heard the Bible preached. All right? Jesus tells us that in Luke 24. But I say to people, pick any passage, anyone you want. I've had some interesting ones over the years. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 9, enjoy life for the days of your wife, all the days of your vain life until you die. You know, I've had things like, but Hosea 2 was a doozy. One couple, um, good friends, dear friends, they said, we want you to preach from Hosea 2. Great. Um, and I said, you know Hosea 2, like the context and, and everything? Yeah, but we've engraved it on our rings. So I was locked in at that point, really locked in. You see, when you look at Hosea 2, Hosea is not the stuff of Hallmark cards. Because when you look in Hosea 2, it's another level where here's Hosea, who God tells, marry this lady, she'll be your wife, and the story is devastating as she leads a life of adultery, and cheating, it is tragic, it is sad, and then God says, go and bring her back and give her mercy and grace. Love her. Why? Because that's how God loves his people. Do you see? God loves his people that way. 
Purity matters, yes. But grace is bigger than impurity. And here is what we see in Hosea. Here's what we, John is saying. He's saying, God is the bridegroom. He comes, the Christ. He's the bridegroom. And he comes to speak tenderly to his people who have turned away from him. He comes, yes, they've cheated on him. They've gone after other gods. But he comes for them and says, I love you. I give you mercy. I give you grace. I bring you back. I forgive you. This is astonishing, isn't it? Like, it's amazing. It's astonishing grace. God is the one who comes to us. See, what do we expect? We expect in a situation like that, between a couple, we expect the person who's done the impure things to come back and say, I'll do better this time. I'll clean up my life. I promise. I won't do it again. That's what we expect. We expect the person to be saying that, I'll be faithful, I'll be pure. You'll see, it's actually not what happens, exactly not what happens at all. What happens? It's God that comes and says, I'm going to make you pure. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give you grace. I'm yours. Would you have me back? It's God who says that. Would you receive grace? Would you receive me? God promises out of love, moved by mercy, to give grace. He is the bridegroom who makes people pure. And so, of course, John knows his place. He's just the best man. He's just the best man. And Jesus doesn't come to put him in his place, doesn't come roughly, but gentle and lowly, Jesus comes tenderly. So John knows his place just by being in Jesus' presence. Jesus the bridegroom, and so John now says, he must increase and I must decrease. To a society that chases fads for purification in all sorts of places, you'll be a better person. You'll have a better life. You will have a much more better life now, your your best life now. You'll have those things now. To that society and to this question, to the people here who want to chase it, purification in, 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 in baptism or, or, or how many baptisms we have or, or, or how impressive we are, to anyone who wants to chase those things, John says it's about none of them. You find purification in the bridegroom. And in a world of FOMO, of fear of missing out, That's who you need. That's what you need. See, we live in a world of competition where we make much of ourselves, don't we? That's why we have FOMO, actually. We have fear of missing out because it's all about me. We make much of ourselves. We used to have a call to worship here, a welcome to church that said, I'm often wrong. And we say, can you admit that? Like, how many times do you go to someone else and tell them how much they're wrong, but how much do you reflect upon actually... I'm I'm possibly wrong fairly often. Can you admit that? Because that's the place of grace. If you can't admit wrong, you can't receive grace. If you can't admit wrong, well, Peter writes and James writes, God opposes the proud. He's actually against the pride of people. But he gives grace to the humble.
We make much of ourselves and we miss out. And here's what John says, don't miss out forever. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, but he comes from heaven, is above all. Jesus Christ, John is saying, Jesus Christ comes to us as the bridegroom, but we also need to get who he is before he's the bridegroom. He's God. He's God himself. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Notice the, the word there in verse 32. He bears witness, not that he's born witness, present tense. He bears witness now. What is that saying? God is speaking to you now. When you open the Bible, he bears witness now. You are meeting Jesus now. He's speaking to you now. But there are some, John says in verse 33... There are some that although some reject, some will receive. I say God is true. This is true and it's true. I believe it. I want to trust him. I want to turn from my sin and turn to him. And verse 34 and 35, God receives you. He gives the spirit without measure. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. He is God. He is the God-man. No other religion has a man like this. And then we see in verse 36, here is where the real missing out of our lives comes. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him or her. Friends, these are unignorable words. There's no Aussie yeah, nah with this. There's your eternal life of receiving this from Jesus or there's missing out forever. And it's helpful to pause and ponder on these words here. The words to believe and to obey are synonyms. They mean the same thing. What this means is I think that often many people say, yeah, I like Jesus. And I like him kind of hanging out in parts of my life. He makes me feel good. I like Jesus. But to obey Jesus as Lord of all of my life, every part of my life, well, that that becomes too much. Because I want to run my life, but I want to ask again, how's that been going for us? You either believe in him and obey him or you don't believe in him and you disobey him. And the question is, which one are you? If you believe in Jesus, you have it now. John writes, John the Baptist's words, notice this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not a FOMO kind of, I really hope I get eternal life. If you believe in the Son now, you have eternal life right now. It's secured for you by believing in and obeying Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But if you don't, you are doomed without Jesus. 
Now you may read that and God's wrath and think on God's wrath and think, well, God's angry. We often treat God's anger as the no, we don't go there, don't, don't talk about God's anger. But here's the thing, we need, we want actually God to be angry. When you look at the news and you see what people do to one another, be that on a national scale, a global scale, or to their neighbour, when you see what people do to one another, should God be indifferent to that? Should God be apathetic towards that? Should he be just like, well, that's, that's, that's unfortunate. You want God to be angry when people are when people are maligned and hurt and, and damaged, you, you, you actually want God to, be, to feel what you It's not right. God's wrath is not like our anger, though. Our anger is unstable. Our anger is usually about me. But God's anger is actually about how we love others and we love him too. It's, it's an anger that is measured and appropriate and proportionate and it's patient. God's wrath, the last day is coming. And he sent the bridegroom to bring you back. And here's what's extraordinary about this bridegroom. Notice what John says. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. And John says, it's all about Jesus. But when you look to Jesus, right, what do you notice about Jesus? Here's what's extraordinary about Jesus Christ. The one who deserves to increase, what does he do? He willingly decreases. The one who deserves all the glory and power and authority lays down his power and authority and glory and goes to a cross. He decreases by dying on a cross. He bears your blame. He takes your shame. He shoulders it and says, I've come to bring you back. I'm going to decrease to death for you. The bridegroom comes and dies for the bride. To purify her, to make her his people. You might have FOMO, you might have just a few fears. You may have shame, you may be aware of how impure you are. Yet now you can receive grace from truly the greatest. The one who deserves to increase, you get grace from him. You get eternal life and never miss out if you believe upon him. Have you ever experienced greatness? We, we get FOMO because we make much of me, ourselves. But when you meet Jesus, you actually see over time that kind of the FOMO dissipates, it disappears. Because, of course, if he's increasing in your life, what else could you possibly need? When you meet Jesus, you meet, you experience greatness. And that changes you. It actually gives you a stability and a joy, even in sorrow, even in hard times. You'll have less FOMO and more stability, uh, less hubris and more humility, less talking about how great you are. And just, I'm just really wanting to share about how actually great Jesus is. 
See, to actually have humility, people search this, they, they write tomes on it, from the ancient philosophers to the modern day uh, writers, everyone's interested in humility and people write lots of stuff on it. But here's the big idea, to actually have humility is to experience Christ. We don't get humility by just trying to be more humble. It's a phantom to chase that because you'll find you're never there. But if you actually encounter and worship the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, God who is humble, which is an incredible profound thought that should really fill our eternal worship. God is humble. God is humble. Let that settle in your minds. God lets himself be humiliated on the cross. When you meet that God and his name is Jesus Christ, you can only but say, well, he must increase. Because <laughs> that's astonishing. Do you live like that? Do you live and make decisions? Do you dream and have ambitions and pray with all your focus on Christ? Or is your life where you just secretly hope and I know what it is to live this way, this is why I mention it, do you just secretly hope that Jesus doesn't increase too much? Well, Jesus, slow down, Jesus. Steady, Jesus. I'm trying to have my plans and dreams come true, Jesus. Or do you so yearn for Jesus to increase in your life that whatever happens, Jesus must be the biggest thing in the room? Or are you still having FOMO, living it, where the great Australian dream of comfort and career and status, whatever that is for you, is your dream, and you just, just want to get Jesus and squeeze him in on the edge somewhere. And you say, yeah, he must increase, but just not too much. Thanks, Jesus. I think our danger as Christians is that we make our life even like that. But there's something we're missing out on. Christ increasing in our life, experiencing his greatness. Dear friends, you can never make too much of Christ. Let him be the biggest thing in your life, in the room. You'll never miss out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need our lives changed. We need our FOMO syndrome gone, our fear of missing out. Our, we need our sin cleansed from us, our hearts purified. Please help our hearts to behold Christ and have him increase in our hearts, in our affections, our love, our living for Jesus and not for other things. Father, there are some of us who need to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, right now. For we need to have eternal life now, and so show us how big our sin is, our lack of love. Show us how, how serious your wrath is and how, how much your love is. Show us that Jesus is bigger on that cross. And Father, we need, we're praying, we're asking that you would now give us that belief to be living with Jesus large in our life. Make Make us like him, the humble one. We ask and pray in Jesus' name and may his name increase. Amen. Amen. Amen.